Uh, last Tuesday, or I'm sorry, last uh, Sunday, uh, when I uh, when I had the blessing of, of teaching you and, and preaching, uh, we saw the passage that puts Jesus uh, on Tuesday of Holy Week, uh, put him in the temple. Uh, if you remember what I said to you at that time, is that Jesus was in the temple. He had come in from Bethsaida. And he had been preaching there and telling the the people to beware of the scribes and the religious leaders. And then he sat in front of where the treasury was and he observed how people give to the Lord. And in particular, he observed a widow who gave out of her poverty, but also gave out of the abundance of her heart. And what I said to you at the time that I, I found uh, refreshing for me at the time is that he who is the offering of God for God's people was observing God's, the people's offering to God. Do you realize that? He who is God's offering to you was observing your offering to God. Today... We are possibly, in the passage that was just read today, today we are possibly, it's either Tuesday evening or it's that same Tuesday late in the afternoon. And Jesus leaves the temple for the last time, not to return again. The next time that he enters into the city of Jerusalem, He enters arrested and ready for trial, taken over to a hill just outside the city and crucified. So the event that we are seeing today, kind of, uh, we can see Jesus leaving the temple. And he now sits across from the temple mount in what we know as the Mount of Olives. The Temple Mount is probably at its highest peak, no more than about uh, 2,428 feet above sea level. The, The Mount of Olives is at least 262 feet higher than the Temple Mount. And from the Mount of Olives you would have kind of a panoramic view of of the city of Jerusalem, the old city of David, the new city, and, and the Temple Mount. The Mount of Olives runs almost 2.1 miles north and south, and one of its highest peak is the peak of the Mount uh, there, Mount of Olives, which is about 2,683 feet. Now, if you want to put that in comparison, and I know uh, some of you love hiking, uh, Mount Baldy, which is part of the uh, San Gabriel mountain range, uh, is about 10,000 feet, just a little bit over 10,000 feet uh, over sea level. And uh, Mount Wilson is about 5,700 feet. Uh, feet above sea level. So 
those of you that love hiking and possibly have gone up there in hikes, you know that the mountain where Jesus is, is sitting with his disciples, they're really not very large. They're not very tall or very big comparing to some of those that we know ourselves. Between the Mount of the Temple and the Mount of Olives is what we call or what is known as the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is just a valley that goes down and then starts coming up to the Mount of Olives. When the disciples get to the Mount of Olives on the other side of the valley and they look to their west, they, they see the beauty of the temple. In fact, I have a, a slide up there that kind of gives you a, a, a brief view. The next slide, please. It kind of gives you a, kind of what it might look like. That there is the, the dome of the rock now, or where the temple was. And it kind of gives you a view. You can see down below uh, the Kidron Valley. And that picture is probably taken from about the Mount of Olives. And as the disciples look at their temple, what they saw was a very, very beautiful temple. And one of the disciples comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, look at how beautiful the temple is, which prompts Jesus to then say, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. You see this beautiful temple you are all so loving and, and so appreciative of and so uh, you, you're in awe of the gold in it and the beauty of it. The time is coming where not one stone will stand in, on top of another. And that prompts the sermon that Jesus is about to preach on the end times, which is what I want to talk to you a little bit today. And I want you to understand that the sermon that Jesus is about to preach is in complete agreement with the prophetic word from the prophets about the great and terrible day of the Lord. The prophets had been prophesying about a day that is not going to be pretty whatsoever, and it's not going to be a day of peace, but it will be a day of terror. In fact, I have there from Isaiah, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. And then I chose another passage from the prophet Zephaniah. And Zephaniah chapter 1 says, uh, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There, there the mighty men shall cry out. 
That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of cloud and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm. And these are just two passages I wanted to share with you what Jesus speaks about in what we know as the Sermon in the Mount of Olives or the Sermon on the Last Days corresponds exactly with what the prophets have been foretelling for the longest time. Jesus is in agreement about a day that is to come, that it will be a terrible day, a day of fear, a day of turmoil, a day that will be difficult. And though I'm not going to touch on it, the first part of chapter 13 in, in Mark tells you many of the signs that Jesus gives ahead of times that we should look at and the disciples were to look at to, to understand the times and to understand how this day is approaching. Because what happens is that after he gets to the Mount of Olives and he says that every stone will be destroyed, four of the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, will you tell us when this will be? And how do we know when the day is approaching? And that's what gives or prompts Jesus' sermon on the last days. And you need to read it uh, to understand some of the signs, uh, which is famines and wars and pestilence and and rumors of wars and, and all kinds of heavenly catastrophes and heavenly things that are going on. But you go ahead and read the first, uh, uh, from actually from chapter 13, verses 5 through 13. If you want to read about the signs that Jesus puts forth. But I want to primarily deal today with what Jesus says in verse 14. When he speaks about, because once he gives all these signs at verse 14, he says, But, but, when you see the abomination of desolation, Know that the day is here. When you see the abomination of desolation sitting where it ought not. And then he puts in parentheses, the author, Mark, puts in parentheses, the reader, let the reader understand. And of course, uh, 2,000 years later, we wish that we had had more explanation. But I think we have enough in order to, to comprehend. When you see the abomination of desolation sitting where it ought not, another translation could be when you see the sacrilegious abomination sitting where it ought not. So what we are looking at, we are referring, or Jesus is referring to a time in history or in prophetic history that is yet to come, that something will occur so sacrilegious, so terrible in the temple in Jerusalem that it will usher the great and terrible day of the Lord. 
which presupposes that the temple must be built and the sacrificial system must still be in place when this thing occurs in the temple. It presupposes that there is a temple and that there are sacrifices still being performed. The term abomination of desolation or the sacrilegious desolation has its roots in the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel prophesied when he was still a slave in Babylon. That's when he prophesies. And he speaks about the abomination of desolation. What happens is Daniel is in prayer. He's praying and asking God, according to the prophecies of Jeremiah, it would be 70 years from the time that they arrived in Babylon to the time that the Jews would be allowed to leave to rebuild Jerusalem. 70 years. And as Daniel does his calculations, he understands that the 70 years are about to come to be fulfilled. And he begins to pray that the Lord would open the doors for the Jews to be able to return to Judea and begin to rebuild the temple. And he begins to confess to God the sins of the people. And in the middle of his prayer and asking God to prepare the people to return, he's interrupted by whom he calls the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and he says to him that he's delayed a little bit because the prince of Persia opposed him and Michael had to come and fight that prince so that Gabriel could come and reveal God's message to him. And he begins a revelation, which is in Daniel chapter 9. He begins a revelation where he reveals to Daniel 70 weeks of seven years. In other words, 490 years. 70 weeks of seven years. Okay? And it equals 490 years. And he says farther that the 70, the 70 weeks are to be divided into 69 weeks of, of, of sevens that will begin from the time that the order is given to return to Judea to build the temple until the time of the Messiah. The fulfillment of the first 69 weeks of years will be from the time of the announcement to return to Judea to the time of the Messiah. And it does get fulfilled. The following line in that prophecy says that the Messiah would be cut off. And when the Messiah is cut off, a new prince will arise. A prince that will enter into a covenant with the people of, 
of, of Ju the Jews of Judea, the Israelites, the Jews, that he would enter and begin a covenant with them. But at the middle of that last week of seven days, which is seven years, at about the middle, which is three and a half years, he will break the covenant again with the Jews. He will break the covenant, forbid the practice of sacrifices, and he will then sit in the temple of the living God as if he was God. And as Daniel receives this and gives it to us, and I invite you to read chapter 9 of Daniel, which is the last of his visions that he sees. As he begins to, to say that, he also receives, because he starts asking, Lord, when is this going to be and how is this going to be? And all he gets is, the books are closed. Seal the books of this prophecy. They will not be opened again until the time of the end. So his, his own questions are unanswered. Until the time of the end comes. Many have tried to ascertain. What is this prophecy about? And when does the end come? Who is this prince that enters and becomes. And sits in, in the throne of God. Some Jews have suggested, and they've seen this, that Antiochus Epiphanes, who was uh, a king that took over one of the portions of Alexander the Great's empire, and he comes to Jerusalem, and he enters the city of Jerusalem in his horse, and he goes up to the temple, and he enters the Holy of Holies in his horse, that only the priests were allowed to enter. And he takes a pig and sacrifices the pig in the altar of sacrifices in the temple, and forbids the practice of Jewish worship. Some have seen this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, as the one that Daniel was talking about. As one who comes to the temple, desecrates the temple, which is what gives rise to the Maccabean revolt, and eventually to the Feast of Hanukkah, the, of the lights, when the temple gets rededicated by the Jews. Some see this man as the fulfillment of Daniel. Daniel's prophecy about a prince that would cause an abomination and a sacrilegious act to be done. The problem is that Jesus coming many years after Daniel's prophecy, Jesus doesn't say that is the fulfillment. Jesus still looks to another prince that is to come. Jesus still points to another time of great tribulation yet to come. He doesn't say that was fulfilled. He says that is yet to come. Look out. So Jesus himself doesn't see that as the fulfillment. He points forward to another time in the future. So if that is the case, many theologians have looked at what happens after Jesus' life and death and so on. 
one of the persons that is pointed to is the Emperor Caligula. Emperor Caligula was nutty. Yeah, of all the emperors, he was just crazy. And he decided that he was going to build a statue of himself. And he was going to put it in the temple of God and cause everyone to worship him, all the Jews, to worship him. And it would have caused a tremendous revolt again in Jerusalem had he not died before he did that. So we have to remove Caligula because he doesn't fulfill what Daniel was talking about. So the other person that people look to is the Emperor Titus. Because in 70 AD, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, in 70 AD, the emperor, the Roman emperor, enters Jerusalem and he destroys the city of Jerusalem, destroys totally the temple, which is why today all we have is a portion of what's called the Western Wall. Because every part of the temple was destroyed. And with the destruction of the temple comes the ceasing of all the sacrifices. And so it seems to fulfill what Daniel was talking about. But the reality is that it does not. Not completely. Because the seven weeks that Daniel talks about, or the seventh week that he talks about, doesn't end the way that Daniel prophesied it. Not in the life of Titus. It doesn't happen. And Titus, for one, doesn't sit in the throne in the, in the temple. What he does is destroy the temple. Farther, when we look at John, who receives the book of Revelations in Patmos, he again looks forward to another prince. He still doesn't see the fulfillment, though he lived through the Titus destruction of the temple. He still doesn't think that Daniel's prophecy is fulfilled in that event. He still looks to one whom he calls in the book of Revelations, the Antichrist. There's still a look forward in Scripture. And what John is revealing is a time of destruction throughout the whole world. And he describes it in the book of Revelation. So it is not fulfilled. It is yet to be fulfilled. Now clearly we can say that the Jews have seen many antichrists rise. And we have all seen many antichrists rise. We certainly have seen Hitler and the Holocaust. And we can certainly call him an antichrist. And we can certainly call that a tribulation that the Jews went through. But the reality is that the Bible speaks of many tribulations, but speaks of only one that's called the great tribulation. And even Jesus says that it is such an event that we have never seen it, yet and we will never see it again once it happens. It will be so terrible and destructive that Jesus himself announces that it is something unlike anything in the past and unlike anything to ever occur again once it takes place. 
So friends, we come to today and we are still reading that the prophecies of Daniel, the prophecy of Jesus, and the prophecies of many of the uh, prophets is yet in the future. Because it doesn't end the way that Daniel has prescribed that it would end. And Titus doesn't fulfill it and none of the others do. When we go to the book of Revelations and we begin to look at this Antichrist, we see a figure that comes under the power of Satan because that's all he is. He's a peon of Satan, of the devil. And he rises at a time in the history of the world. He rises at the time when the world is in turmoil. Perhaps economic turmoil. In fact, there is economic turmoil because Revelations describes it as such. But it is also a time of great wars and nation against nations. And this individual rises and if for some reason he begins to promise people that he will bring a peace on the whole world. And people begin to look at this particular individual as the savior of the world. And perhaps set him up as the president of the whole universe. He all of a sudden rises to a position where every nation begins to look to him for leadership. And this is the individual that begins at first bringing peace and bringing order. And everyone is happy with him. And eventually he sits in the throne of God and declares himself to be God. And that is possibly the desolation that is being spoken of. The sacrilegious desolation. The abomination of desolations. When we look at the book of Revelations. And when we look at these pictures and what Jesus is saying, Jesus actually says that this will be such a terrible day that he tells people, flee, run, run as fast as you can and as far as you can from this place. Run to the mountains. If you're in the field, don't go home to pick up clothing. Don't even go looking for family members. If you are in the top of your house, don't go down into the house. Don't just run. Run because it's coming so fast that you will not be able to outrun it if you delay. Jesus presents to us a, a condition and a situation what, that all he can say is run with all your might because what's coming is destructive if you want to save your life. picture that the prophets paint and the picture that Jesus paints is of a time that is it's nothing like we've seen before and it's not like anything you really want to see it will be a time of terror a time where you cannot buy and sell without the mark of the beast so called a time of betrayal of brother to brother a time of nation fighting nations. And then this individual rises. The picture that is being presented here. Is not a picture that. That any one of us would want to live through. But 
But what Jesus has to say to his disciples is not be terrified. What Jesus has to say to his disciples and to the church is be warned. Be warned. What Jesus is saying to the church is you are the watchmen of the world. The church is the watchman of the world. The church is the one that needs to sound the trumpet that the enemy is on its way. What Jesus says to the disciples and to the church is that they have the duty and the responsibility to tell the world of that enemy that is to come. It is not for the church to be silent and it is not for the church to be dormant. The world as it is, is dormant. It doesn't know what is yet to come. Though Jesus said, I've told you in advance. I am more interested in the job of the church than in the signs of the time. I am more interested that the church of Jesus Christ does its part in the world. That we are the ones that need to proclaim the word of God to all people. So that no one is caught unaware of these things that are yet to come. The church is not called to be asleep. But to be very much awake and manning the towers. And when we see the enemy, we need to sound the trumpet. And we need to warn the world. And we need to warn everyone. Not because fear is going to bring them into the church. But because fear may save their lives. The job of the church is not to just meet on Sundays. And hear nice sermons. And go away and say until next week. The job of the church is to sound the trumpet. To sound the trumpet, to live awake, to be informed and not ignorant. To be aware of those passages in scripture that tells us about the end times. Because my friends, the book of Revelation is the word of God and it will be fulfilled. I guarantee you that much. The word of God doesn't leave his lips and come back void. The word of God will be fulfilled and what Jesus is talking about will take place. And for us to be asleep and ignorant of these things would be the gravest mistake the church can make. We are the ones that should be sounding the trumpet in the world. It's not time for peace yet. It is not time yet for entering the kingdom and everything is wonderful and, and beautiful. We are still at war with the enemies of God. And one of those enemies is the Antichrist. I'm not going to tell you who that person is because I don't know. Many have attempted to tell you who the Antichrist is. Jesus doesn't tell us. But he gives us sufficient signs for us to look at when the end days are approaching. Paul writes about it in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians about that Antichrist and what will happen once the Holy Spirit is to leave this church. As we read the last sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, 
the Sermon on the End Time, it concludes pretty much with Jesus assuring us that he's coming back. In fact, he says that if he didn't shorten the days, if he didn't shorten the days of his coming, even the elect would be lost. That would be such a terrible situation that even those of you who today claim Christianity and I will stand with Jesus when things got as bad as they're going to get, even we might be lost. Jesus says that he shortens the days of his second coming for the sake of the elect. My friends, I don't fear that day in the sense that I know my salvation is secure in Christ. But I fear that day because of those that will be destroyed, because of those that will be lost forever, and because of what we would go through if we are alive at the end of time. The church must awaken. This is not a game. This is very serious. And we are the ones that God has entrusted the gospel to. We are the ones that God has entrusted the work of the church to. And we cannot be asleep. We must be awake. We are the watchmen of the world, of the universe. We must announce these things because it's what the Lord spoke about. With this sermon, Jesus pretty much closes his ministry. And what happens in the next few days leads him to the cross and the resurrection and the victory over death. So our hope is in the Lord. But let us not be ignorant of these things. The day of the Lord will be terrible. And we should tell people. We should tell everyone that they not be caught unawares. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, please.